Well, good morning. Good to see you folks this day. Encourage you to take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 7. Gospel of Luke. We're continuing our journey through this um, pretty big book of the Bible. And we find ourselves very uh, much embedded this morning within the Christmas narrative, the advent of Jesus. We look forward to our time together in God's Word. So Luke chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 7. This is the Word of the Lord. Luke writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. Lord, as we read and unpack this morning a very familiar passage to many of us, Lord, it's our prayer and it's our desire that you would take your word and indeed as we just stated through song, that you would implant it deep within us and that you would cause our eyes to see and you would cause change to take place that we might know you more and that we might love you more. Father, would you speak to us today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all like a good story. Indeed, a good story will draw us in. It will keep our attention. It will impact our emotions and the really good stories will even usually have something to teach us maybe a principle or a moral or something like that. I think that's why we, or at least some of us like to read. All of us should like to read, but some of us like to read because we like to be part of a story. And the vast majority of us like to watch at least movies, uh, being engrossed, being brought in, enjoying a good story, story. And so whether you're anticipating the final Star Wars movie coming out in five days, who's counting, or you've recently seen movies like Harriet or A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, highlighting real stories of people. We all appreciate being brought into a story. And while we can list perhaps thousands of stories, not all stories are created equal. Most of them have their limits both in content and impact. While some continue to be retold over the centuries, very few last beyond a few hundred years. When we think about the Bible, the Bible is a compilation of many different stories that fall within a greater story. And it's timeless, both in its truthfulness, not that it's just teaching truth, but in its historical truthfulness, and its eternal impact. 
And when we read the Bible, we know as we read this grand story, this true story, the Christmas story is one of those very popular stories that we find within, known throughout the world. And we should not fear of it being cast aside as some other story, as other stories may come and go. We should have no fear of this story being cast aside anytime soon. I mean, it's like many other stories in a lot of ways. It has a cast of characters, it has a setting, it has a climax, it has all the elements that make for a good story. But it emerges as part of the greatest story ever told because it's the only true story. It's the only historically valid story that will impact your life for eternity. It's the only true story that can give you lasting hope. Eugene Peterson, once speaking about, I think it was in his introduction to the book of Exodus in the message, the paraphrase of the Bible, he says it is significant that God does not present us with salvation in the form of abstract truth only or a precise definition or a catchy slogan, but as story. Story is an invitation to to participate first through our imagination and then if we will by faith with our total lives in response to God. God reveals himself through story. It's a great story because it's familiar and it's true. But friends, it's also great because of what it gives you. The birth narrative of Jesus magnifies for us the true nature of God's character and therefore gives us confidence to live out our lives in the midst of a broken world. The realities of what are described here in Luke's accounts are critical to us understanding the nature and character of God and thereby enabling us and encouraging us to live out lives of obedience and faithfulness in the midst of a world that is broken by sin. I want us to see several things this morning from these first seven verses. These three points about God's character and God's work that this nativity draws out, that this, that this scene draws out for us to give us stronger sense of confidence and hope in the great work of God as he reveals himself through this story. Three things this morning I want us to see. First of all, as we think about this, this true story of Jesus' birth, we first see it's a story of providence. It's a story of providence. You can see that very clearly in the first five verses. Luke gives us the historical background leading up to Jesus' birth. Now, you may not think the historical background is all that important for us to dwell on. I mean, why are we looking at verses one through seven? Why don't we just go ahead and get to verses eight and following where there's much more? This is just kind of history. You may not think it's all that important for us to dwell on here, but, but there is, in fact, much for us to consider. These events took place, Luke tells us, during the reign of Caesar Augustus. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Began his reign of power in 27 BC. Most will say that his rule was mainly a time of peace. And so when Caesar Augustus was in power, there wasn't 
much conflict in the world during that time. Rome wasn't at, in, in, engrossed in some major battle or some major war. It was a reign of peace. But we know that that's somewhat relevant depending on who you are. If you were an Israelite, it didn't feel very peaceful because you were being oppressed by this Roman regime. But by and large, we can say that it was relatively peaceful reign. So what we need to understand, though, is Luke is not merely giving us a historical context for a history lesson. Luke is not realizing that centuries later, you might be at a dinner party playing Bible trivia and is wanting to give you some, some, some information for you maybe to win a question or two. He is pulling the curtain back for a moment, and he is helping us see God's providential control over history to bring about his purposes. He's using this historical account to explain how it was Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem. We're told that Caesar Augustus decrees a worldwide census to be taken, which results in Mary and Joseph traveling back to Bethlehem. They were in Nazareth. Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral home. It's where he is from. And so this was some distance away. This was not just a jump in the car and drive 20 minutes down the road. This was a day, many days journey, very rugged terrain. And so for this decree to come down at the particular time in which this young couple was experiencing was not, not convenient if you were in their sandals. And Luke's wanting us to see something though. Luke's wanting us to see that something much greater is taking place behind the simple edict from, a, from the ruling power of the day. It was no random act that a census was decreed. Mary and Joseph had to end up in Bethlehem. We know from the book of Micah, the prophet Micah, hundreds of years before, prophesied. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, in Ephrathah, uh, who, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You see, the Bible had decreed, had prophesied hundreds of years before that the Savior of the world, that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. So it had to be, just as the Bible said, that the Savior would come from Bethlehem. Well, how was that going to happen if Mary was not there? Well, the Lord says, how about Rome? issue a decree for a census so that everyone had to go back to their hometown to see this happen. And so the decree from Caesar Augustus is actually the means that God ordained to fulfill Micah chapter five. Caesar Augustus probably had no, certainly had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. Caesar Augustus thought he was the sovereign but little did he know that there was a greater sovereign behind him calling the shots. You see, Jesus would enter the world just at the right time in just the right place. 
and not even Rome could stop it from happening. In fact, Rome was actually complicit in setting the stage for the arrival of the Messiah. I think there are several things we can appreciate, at least in principle, when we reflect upon this historical setting. A couple of takeaways that we should see here when we consider what God was doing providentially to control the, 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 the events of history, even through the most powerful empire of that day and time. First of all is this, kings and rulers ultimately serve God's purposes. Kings and rulers ultimately serve God's purposes, even if they have no conscious belief in God, even if they are in total rejection of God. Neither Caesar nor Quirinius, the local, would have looked to the Lord for guidance and wisdom whatsoever, we know, because of the culture and the context in which they lived. We know the religious climate of that day in Rome was not one that was friendly towards Judaism or the Christian faith, what would become the Christian faith. And they certainly would not have understood God to have been providentially working behind the scenes. But yet what we see is this theme throughout the scripture. This is not the only place this happens. God using evil, corrupt empires to accomplish his, to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. I mean, we saw it in Egypt with Pharaoh. We saw it in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. We see it with Cyrus in Persia and now with Caesar Augustus in Rome. God working through rulers, raising them up for his purposes. Friends, I think this just encourage, should encourage us that we should view world leaders in the way that the Bible says. A leader, a ruler, a president, a king, a prime minister, Congress, parliament may indeed have a lot of power and say in what goes on in the laws and the rule in the, in the laws of the land of the day. But friends, they cannot thwart the purposes and providence of God. This means that we should not view government leaders as our ultimate hope. Yes, we must pray for them. We're instructed to do so. Yes, we must be engaged in the public square. We must be part of the discussion. We must do all that we can to see the right leaders put into place. But listen, that means, though, we should not view them as our ultimate hope. God's purposes cannot and will not be hindered based upon who's in office. He can, he can work through the most corrupt of governments and providentially cause his purposes to come forth. In fact, that's what you see mostly in the Bible. The vast majority of the rulers that God is using in the scripture, the ones I just mentioned, are accomplishing, unbeknownst to them, because of the providence of God, are actually complicit in some of the greatest periods of redemptive history. Now that doesn't mean either that we should just elect all the evil people that we can and watch God work. It just means that you shouldn't put your hope in them. You shouldn't put your hope in them. You should put your hope in the one who stands sovereignly over them. You see, he can work in any one he chooses. Friends, Mary and Joseph would not have been in Bethlehem apart from this Roman decree. Now, certainly God could have used something else. 
but this is what he chose to use. Friends, our hopes do not rise and fall based upon who rules. Our hopes should be firmly fixed upon the one who rules eternally. Kings and rulers ultimately serve God's purposes. We know they have their place. We know we should pray for them and be part of this world's way of ruling, but ultimately not putting our ultimate hope in them. The second takeaway that we can see is that our times are in God's hands. Our times are in God's hands. Friends, God knows the best time and the best way to bring about his purposes. Now, do you think for a minute Joseph and Mary were happy about this census? Mary being very pregnant, Joseph realizing how long of a journey this was going to be, this was not at all convenient. This was not, this was not on the calendar for them. But we know that God orders things both in heaven and in earth precisely as he determines for his good purposes. The last thing that Caesar would have thought was that he was helping carry out the eternal purposes of God. But what great comfort to know that God knows the best time and the best place and the best way to carry out his will. Friends, that is true concerning the big events such as the birth of Jesus, but it's also true down to the very minute details of your own life. God knows what is best and good and right. Our times are in his hands. I think sometimes we, we can lose sight of that. We get so discouraged. We just look around us and see all that's going on and all the corruption and all the bad and all the things that weigh heavy on us. And, and sometimes we lose sight of this reality. We need not grow anxious about the details of human history, nor we should grow anxious about the details of our lives because our times are in God's hands. God knows exactly what we need, exactly when we need it, and he acts just in time. Friend, are you resting in God's perfect wisdom? Are you resting in God's providential control? It's a story of providence. Second reality that we see in this text about this story is that it's a story of fulfillment. See that in verses six and seven, it's a story of fulfillment. When you read Luke's account and you compare it to many of the modern takes on the nativity, the advent, I think we're in for a few surprises. And so one of the things that I'm going to do this morning is ruin everyone's nativity set. Maybe. You'll find some interesting differences when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' arrival versus those that we see in movies and pageants today. Now, I'm just going to say this kind of as a side note because it's really not the main point, but I find it interesting. For example, in many of the modern retellings of the events that transpired in, in Bethlehem, we get this impression that Mary gave birth the very same night that they arrived in Bethlehem after frantically trying to find a place to stay in Bethlehem, having to settle for a barn or a stable. 
That's not exactly what the text says. Read verse 6. And while they were there, seems that they had been in Bethlehem for some time, doesn't it? Seems that they had been there for at least a few days, maybe longer. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 6 says, while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. Friends, Middle Eastern hospitality would have had zero category for rejecting a young couple with child looking for a place to stay. Would have been completely outside of their purview. Especially a hometown of Joseph. So the impression that they were being rejected and ultimately told no by an angry innkeeper who is not in the text actually is not something we get from the biblical text. What is clear is that they are now in Bethlehem just as the scripture said would be. That's the takeaway. It was known as the city of David and Joseph was in the lineage of David, thus fulfilling the promise that the Messiah would come from David's line, from David's city. As we see that this faithfulness of God is is on display here. The faithfulness of God is something Luke continues to emphasize, that God is faithful to his promises. Listen, when you read Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, the entire Old Testament was leading to Luke 2, 6 and 7. Luke 2, 6 and 7 are the answer of what 37 books, is that right, 37? Did I get that right? 39, 39 books of the Old Testament. It's 27 in the New. 39 Old Testament books had pointed forward to Luke 2, 6 and 7 says, done. There's a little bit more work to do, but this is the answer. God's faithfulness. I know we've been talking a lot about God keeping his promises lately, but listen, the sad reality of our own broken hearts and our own broken lives is that we often forget God's faithfulness. And for us to be reminded yet again that God is faithful to fulfill his promises is not something that is just too much to say because we've said it so many weeks prior. Friends, if God can't be trusted, then all of this is for nothing. But we have confirmation after confirmation after confirmation that God indeed can be trusted. And we need reminding of this so often because our hearts, as we sing, are prone to wonder. Our hearts are prone to forget. Our hearts are prone to to lose sight of the faithfulness of God. Friends, we are prone to doubt, we are prone to fear, we are prone to grow anxious. Things in life happen, and things in life will often obscure your confidence in the promises of God. Many of you right now have things going on in your life that if you allow them, will obscure your sightline of the faithfulness and of the goodness of God. Sometimes we find our confidence is shaken. Our fears and our worry all too real. 
But friends, let this simple declaration of Mary giving birth to a son, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Let that sentence, simple as it sounds, be a reminder of the sure word of God that God is always faithful to his promises and that you can indeed trust him even when it doesn't make sense, even when you wouldn't have planned it this way, even when it's confusing and when it's weird and it's frustrating, even when God allows a census to take place, on and on we can go. Let this be yet another reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness. When you find yourself doubting and shaken, look no further than the manger where God is saying, I have kept my word and I will continue to keep my word. It's a story of fulfillment. But third, it's also a story of humility. We see this as well in verses six and seven. The birth of Jesus is a story of humility. The Messiah of the world, the savior of the world would not enter the world in royalty, but he came in lowly fashion. See again verse seven, another example of where Sometimes our understanding of what actually took place in Bethlehem may not be quite in line with what the biblical text says. The text says, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Again, most of us have this image uh, that Joseph and Mary rush into Bethlehem just at the right time with Mary in labor sitting on a donkey, going from place to place being rejected. We're even taught to think that they're rejected by an innkeeper at the local Bethlehem Inn because the text in our English translations say inn. But there would not have been an inn like we think about hotels today, particularly so in Bethlehem. It wasn't necessarily on a main road, and so they would not have necessarily had a, a large place where multiple people were staying as they're passing through. It's kind of like St. Mary's County. You don't just pass through. Right? You just got to come on purpose. The word for in is actually the same word used in Luke chapter 22, verses 10 through 12. Remember where Jesus sends someone to set up the room for the Passover? It's the same word used in that chapter for guest room. Most homes in that day would have consisted of two rooms, maybe three. And so what you would have found in Middle Eastern culture in this day and time in Bethlehem were homes that had a large family room, even where most of the family would have slept. Adjacent to that would have been where they would have another room where they have brought some of the livestock in for the evening out of the coldness of the night. And in that would have been a feeding trough right beside the living room. Some homes would have had a third room, either upstairs or adjacent, which would have been a guest room where people could have stayed kind of in overflow. So really, unlike anything we know today, one main room, possibly a guest room, certainly a, a room to bring in the livestock. It's more likely the case, and if I get to heaven and find out differently, I will concede. It's more likely the case that Mary and Joseph were staying in someone's house 
but the guest room was full, so they stayed in the main family room where Mary gave birth, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and placed him in the manger, which would have been right there because of the livestock room adjacent to the family room. Now, I know that might ruin all of our nativity sets, but it seems to be more realistic according to the biblical text. And again, no major truth is weighing on one or the other. Either way, the point Luke is making is that Jesus enters the world in a lowly, humble fashion. He's born in a room normally reserved, placed in a feeding trough, normally reserved for animals. And it's from that humble beginning, from a feeding trough, that the Savior of the world begins his ministry, begins his entrance into the world. Friends, the focus on this lowly entrance is important, this, this humble entrance. Our, our culture would not be too impressed with this. Yet we have the most exalted person in human history being born in a crowded room that the only available place to lay this child was a feeding trough. The birth of Jesus teaches us that importance is not a matter of one's environment or some supposed status. Value and worth is not found in where you are, but in who you are and what God has determined to accomplish in you. You see, Jesus is important for a number of reasons, but not ultimately because of where he was at this particular time. Not because of where he was born, but because of who he was and is before God. You see, the humility of Christ is a radical statement and clarification on how we should perceive greatness. Right? Our, our whole definition of greatness is, is certainly not, not found in the scripture today. True greatness is not a matter of one's social resume or financial capability. True greatness rests in who you are according to the purposes of God. Here we have the most important and powerful person in human history coming in total simplicity and in humility. A couple of things that we take away from this. First of all, it helps us to consider the nature of Christ. The very one who made the stars, the planets, the universe, the earth, is the very one who enters the world as a baby in a small peasant village placed in a place held, that held food for animals. Nothing about this scene gives us any kind of imagery of glory and majesty. This is the very one that Paul would say is the image of the invisible God, the one who is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Paul says of him that in him, everything might be preeminent. In him, Paul says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God pleased to dwell in this child who is now laying in a place where animals would feed. This is the one to which every knee will bow. And he's wrapped with cloth and placed in a manger. Philippians 2, Paul would say there that 
speaking of Jesus and his ministry, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We know that his ultimate purpose was to be further humiliated, to be further humbled by humbling himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, one of the most humiliating ways to die in that Roman day. You see, Christ's humility was something that was ultimately required for your redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says there to the church at Corinth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. It was through the humiliation and through the poverty of Jesus that we gain exaltation, that we gain hope, that we gain redemption, that we gain riches. Because he humbled himself and he became obedient. This one who was laid in a manger would be the one that would die on a tree, fully exposed, bearing the curse and weight and guilt of our sin. Christ's humility was something required for your redemption. Friends, if, you, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're thankful you're here. We're hoping you would come back and be, be with us again. But please know this. Among all the things you may hear at Christmas, hear this. That Christmas is ultimately about the one who humbled himself. We live in a world filled with people who don't humble themselves. I know for some of you, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you may have found that, that Christians are even some of the most prideful people that you've met. But I'm here to tell you this morning, we don't worship a prideful God. We worship a God who humbled himself for our sake. Please know that the reason Jesus came was so that people just like you could have joy and peace, could have hope beyond this world. The God of the universe humbled himself by becoming a man ultimately in the person of his son, the one who would give his life to bear the guilt and punishment for sin so that your sin could be forgiven and you could be accepted and adopted in the kingdom of God. This is what we celebrate this Advent, this Christmas season that God would humble himself for people just like you. And that if you would look and put your trust and hope in him, your sins would be forgiven and that you would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. So friend, next time you wonder if God even cares about you, if God even sees you or if God even loves you, look no further than this peasant village in Bethlehem where you see the love of God on radical display as he humbles himself. For your sake, he became poor that you might become rich. Friend, if you're not walking with Jesus as your savior, I would plead for, with you this morning to, to look to him and see what he did so that you can have hope. See, the nature of Christ 
He humbles himself for sinners. But I also want you to see the nature of the kingdom. We learned something here about the nature of God's kingdom, namely that humility goes before glory. This is the way the kingdom works. You see it all over the scripture. In Mark chapter 10, verse 31, the first will be last and the last will be first. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James 4, 10, humble yourself before the Lord and in due time he will exalt you. And that's exactly what Jesus models for us. True greatness is, is not always visible or defined as we would define it or see it. True greatness ultimately comes through humility. I like what the Bede Annual Buile said about the incarnation, about the coming of Jesus into the world. The incarnation, he says, of the Son of God in an animal's feeding trough puts our glory-craving hearts in check. The incarnation of the Son of God in an animal's feeding trough puts our glory-craving hearts in check. He's exactly right. Our hearts crave glory. Our hearts crave attention. But God desires humility. True greatness is not found in human glory. True greatness is not found in all that you can be for yourself. True greatness is found through humility. And yet everything we are taught in this life is we should pursue a life where we exalt ourselves. God says, humble yourself before the Lord and in due time he will exalt you. The greatest exaltation you will ever experience will not be this side of heaven. It will be an exaltation and glorification that only God can give you through Christ. You see, the world is feeding our glory-craving hearts with promises it cannot keep. It offers advancement, success, honor, wealth, prominence, social standing, not all of which are bad things in and of themselves, but the gospel would call us simply to bow First and foremost, we would humble ourselves before God, realizing that he is the true king, the only one worthy of glory. Friends, this one laid in a manger is also the one who lived, died, and was raised and ascended to the Father's right hand. And while your heart may crave glory and prominence and status, Jesus is the only one that should be the treasure, the true and lasting and satisfying treasure of your heart. And you may find yourself today longing for status, longing for influence, but what you ultimately need is to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. To find your sins forgiven, to know that you're adopted as God's children, to be accepted into a kingdom that will never perish. So be careful, Christians. Be careful. Even the heart of a believer can be misguided and crave the wrong kind of glory. Consider this Christmas the one who humbled himself for your sake and examine whether or not you are allowing your heart to be filled with him and what he came to accomplish? Or is it being filled with the things of this world? Friends, this Christmas story is a story of hope because it's a story of God's providence 
It's a story of God's fulfillment. It's a story of God's humility. All for your sake. All for your sake. That he might receive glory. That's why it's the greatest story ever told. And friends, no story can rival this one. No story is quite like this one. Why? Because it's God's story. It's a true story of a generous king who gives himself faithfully and humbly for ungodly sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we realize this morning as we consider or just a glimpse into history to find ourselves situated in a historical place, in a context so long ago. And yet in the midst of this scene here in Luke chapter two, we see so much. We see so much more than a Roman ruler. We see so much more than a young couple with child. Lord, we see you. We see your providence, your faithfulness, and you humbling yourself for our sake. God, would you stir our hearts this morning? I pray that for those who would be here this morning that would not know you as their savior, maybe they know you in concept, they know you from afar, but Lord, they may not know you savingly. Father, would you help them to see today that you have done this so that they could have hope and peace and reconciliation with you. God, would you draw them to you this morning? Would you help them to see their only hope is in Christ? And Father, for those who do trust you this day, I pray that this little glimpse into Bethlehem this morning would, would remind us of your kindness and your goodness and your generosity. And it would show us just how much you love us just how good you are, just how much you can be trusted despite the circumstances around us. Father, my prayer is that this would energize and strengthen our hope and confidence in you today. Thank you for what you've given us by sending your son for our sake. We pray this in his name, amen.